My name is Gracie Otto and I'm the director of the documentary Under the Volcano. It was a glorious dream that George Martin had. A fantastic state-of-the-art studio in the Caribbean. It was so successful. It was a hit factory. He's recognised as the greatest record producer the industry has yet seen, George Martin. George's idea was to take people out of an environment, to put them into harmony with nature. Going to Montserrat was like going into a dream. It was great to have an environment around us where you could escape to. The characters that worked in the studios became part of people's lives. George did cook was in the band, the housekeeper was in the band. It's like it was all one big band. There was no doubt there was a magic on Montserrat. This was sort of the rock star dream. You tied in creativity with being in a special place. At any time in the studio, it's very easy to lose perspective, especially when you're locked up and it becomes your whole world. No, the Brothers and Arms album was done in a few days. The place sort of intensified everything that you were. I mean, we weren't physically aggressive with each other, but it got pretty heated. We went there for the isolation. Here we were in this paradise, which we soon turned into a living hell. When the volcano went off, that was a, a pinnacle point of change a point where nothing was ever going to be quite the same again. It's like seeing something you've created falling into disrepair. Everything has a period. You bring something out of nothing, but it always goes back to nothing again. The 80s was like the renaissance, the golden era of studio recording. It's about the dream that George had of that wonderful space in Montserrat where you had the sun, the sea, nature and music. That is a trailer from the documentary Under the Volcano, and this is Factual America. We're brought to you by Elmo Pictures, an Austin and London-based production company making documentaries about America for international audiences. I'm your host, Matthew Sherwood. Each week, I watch a hit documentary and then talk with the filmmakers and their subjects. This week, we're in for a real treat as we learn how the Beatles producer Sir George Martin turned a hidden-away Caribbean paradise into a 1980s hit-making crucible for the likes of Paul McCartney, Elton John, and such acts as the Rolling Stones, the Police, and Dire Straits, just to name a few. Joining us is acclaimed filmmaker Gracie Otto, who directed and wrote Under the Volcano, which documents this incredible story. Uh, Gracie, welcome to Factual America. How are things with you there in Australia? Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm in Australia and we're in lockdown at the moment. Um, and um, otherwise, life is good. Are you in another lockdown? We've, we've just had our Freedom Day here in the UK. Yeah, we're, we're, Sydney's in a lockdown at the moment. So, you know, we'll see what happens. It's, yeah, I hate to say it, but we're getting all used to this, I think. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but you've made, you've made the most use of your time uh, during this uh, last 18 months, but we'll talk more about that in a, in a bit. Uh, we're, the focus is Under the Volcano, which uh, is, came out on digital DVD and Blu-ray in the UK on July 26th, and is scheduled for a U.S. release on August 17th 
and eventually Australia, New Zealand on the 1st of September. Um, Gracie, thanks again for coming on to the uh, podcast. Thoroughly enjoyed the film. It was uh, for someone who was uh, formative years of the late 70s and the 80s. This was a an incredible uh, waltz down memory lane, to say the very least, and uh, an incredible story that I wasn't uh, uh, really aware of until seeing your film. So, so thanks again, and thanks for making the film. Um, for our listeners and um, <clears throat> those watching on YouTube, uh, maybe you can give us a synopsis. What is Under the Volcano about? Under the Volcano is a documentary about Sir George Martin's vision, which was to create a studio in the Caribbean where artists could come and, you know, be free to express their creativity and record albums. Um, and it's a, yeah, it's a really interesting island. Um, but, yeah, you have to watch the film to see what happens. <laughs> well, exactly. Um, I mean, I think uh, maybe you give us an idea of the the sort of the, the star power we're talking about. I mean, um I gather, if I maybe if, that you were born in the '80s. I don't know if you're a fan of '80s music, but this is just a this is a murderer's row of like uh, '80s bands. You know, just iconic. Yeah, I remember the first time my producer Cody gave me uh, a giant document of every band that had recorded there and every album and you know song that was made down there, and it was just overwhelming the amount of artists that went down there and obviously you know there's been yeah there's a lot of big superstar kind of names and bands in it as well um yeah so it's incredible that all this music kind of came out of Montserrat um in such a short time period in a way yeah and it was as you say it was Air Studios Montserrat it's uh Serge George Martin the obviously the Beatles uh producer um and as you say, I mean, it's not just the, um, not just the, uh, the, the acts themselves, the, the, the singers, people like Paul McCartney, Elton John. I mean, they also did some of their best, some of these bands did their best work down there. Um, I say down there from a, uh, obviously a Northern Hemisphere bias, but uh, um, I think, um, I mean, we, we're talking about, maybe we could walk us through a little bit, some of the most defining songs and albums of, of the decade, aren't we? I mean, uh We've got Ebony and Ivory with Paul McCartney and Stevie Wonder. We've got uh, all these Elton John. You know, a lot of bands made their comebacks, didn't they? Or, or Yeah, music, I mean, you know? I think every band had a different kind of, you know, take on the place. Like, obviously, the Rolling Stones kind of went down there and that saved them as a band and they decided to kind of continue on because Keith and Mick had kind of gone separate ways. The police you know, made two incredible albums down there and then decided they didn't want to ever <laughs> make another album together. Yeah. Um, and then I think, you know, it was a kind of um, an escape and a haven for people like Paul McCartney um, going down there just after John Lennon passed away. Um, and then also a great um, chance to have a lot of people collaborate that might not have collaborated, you know, had they not. Obviously there's a great story down there about Sting deciding to stay on in the island and the Dire Straits being the next band in. And then they were like, hey, like, why don't you, you know, sing on Money for Nothing? Yeah. Um, so there was a lot of cool stuff like that. But, yeah, great stories about the time down there. Yeah. I mean, that's that's right. A lot of great stories. Each one of those could almost be its own sort of mini doc or, or short, couldn't it? I mean. Yeah, it was really hard when we started because it was just 
yeah, as I said, overwhelming the amount of people who had been down there. And then it was kind of working out what bands we wanted to focus on, obviously who we had access to as well and how we could kind of, you know, string this narrative together while also telling the story, you know, telling a brief history on Sir George Martin and, you know, his his vision for the place as well as then having the island as a character and the people who worked at the studio as part of the narrative as well. So there was a lot. And then, you know, a hurricane and a volcano at the end to right. top it off. Um, there was a lot to kind of jam-pack into a 90-minute film. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. I mean, that must have been one of the bigger challenges of, of all this. I mean, because, like I said, you could take any one of the – you could focus on any one of the bands. You could have just focused on um, – I know we say that sometimes we say like we should have just made a documentary about the police because we had all three band members they recorded two albums down there we had great home video footage from Stuart Copeland great photos from Andy Summers Um, yeah it would have probably made our life a lot easier because it was yeah I mean there was a lot of challenges throughout every part of the process of um, you know from music rights to archive to getting the celebrity interviews and all of that and kind of, yeah, going between, going, oh, today we're talking about Duran Duran and then back to the Rolling Stones and really having to have that, um, you know, snapshot um, history into all the bands and their backstories and where they were in their careers at the time um, was, yeah, a big history lesson. Um, Yeah, I could feel like it could have been a university degree. (laughs) <laughs> I think they do give those out now for the for that subject, but uh, I mean you. I mean I think you've skillfully interweave. Sorry, there. Uh, I think you skillfully interweave those those different stories because, like you said, it could be very. Uh, you obviously want it to be more than just a history lesson, and uh, I think it's uh, it is much more than that. Um, I mean, what was what was so special about? I mean, you've alluded to, it, but what was so special about Air Studios Montserrat? Um, I mean, what did specific specifically did George Martin create there that produced all this great music? I feel music? like it was really special as a studio because of the remoteness and the isolation. Um, I think when I was interviewing Martin Offley, he was talking about how Air London, you know, had a great energy because it was in the middle of Oxford Circus and yeah. you'd go in there and Paul McCartney would be recording in one studio and Duran Duran, there'd be a whole bunch of activity going on um, and you'd just walk outside and be in the heart of London. So I think, you know, this place was special because it was so remote and I think especially taking artists away who were so in the public and the spotlight and, um you know, they have so much other kind of external things that are thrown at them all the time. He just really wanted to create a space where people could, you know, essentially be creative, um, mm. which, as, as we see in the film, you know, works for some people and really doesn't work for other people. <laughs> yeah, I think that was that was also, uh, um, if we talk about warts and all docks, I mean, I think, uh, um, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't. It was a paradise in its way, but it wasn't always a paradise for everyone involved. But, um, um, but I think it's it's not a direct quote. But I think one of your talking heads talks about it being, you know, essentially a place for where bands could get back to basics and get away from all the other stuff that takes away from being who they are originally, isn't it? I mean, making yeah, making and then this I think music. you know, like Nick Rhodes kind of admits that Duran Duran wanted that escape, and then kind of got down there and realised they needed the energy and they wanted, you know, they kind of wanted the fans and they wanted that feeling of being in a gritty studio recording to finish the album and they ended up 
um, with Seven and the Ragged Tiger going back to Australia to finish the album. Um, and they were, you know, they were 21 when they were there, so they were really young. And Yvonne, uh, one of the studio managers, said it was, yeah, it wasn't different, I guess, different parts of people's lives and careers, like whether they were on top at the time or they were, yeah, yeah. making their comeback or they'd been, you know, forgotten about it. It was a different, um, it would be a different environment for all those people going down mm. there. Yeah. And uh, as much as, I mean, we don't want to geek out too much as much as Sam, our engineer here, wants me to. Um, but it was this this incredible state-of-the-art studio. And I mean, that mixing board is almost a character of the doc in it, in its way, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I, to be honest, like I didn't know that much about the Neve console. And I feel like by the time yeah. we finished it was, you know, we could have, um, I, yeah, there was more about the Neve and, um, and that kind of desk that we could have put in the film. Um, but, yeah, it was just interesting to to hear the stories about, especially how they got that Neve consult into yeah. the studio. And, you, you know, you see all the photos of them carrying it in and it was such state-of-the-art equipment and that in itself is a crazy story. I mean, originally George wanted to build a studio on a boat and I think Giles, you know, says that, his, his son that yeah no one really thought about the noise that all the generators on the boat would make <laughs> yeah. but it was that thing about yeah wanting to take artists away to a place so they could purely focus on being creative hmm. but this isn't just about um famous singers and uh albums and in the 80s i mean this is also a uh, about a place called montserrat and uh what well, i mean maybe what was so special about Montserrat, uh, well, probably still is, but especially back then, that um, that helped create this this environment? Because um, um, because it, it's it's it is an interesting element of the of the film. Yeah, I mean, I think there's like there's never been much crime or anything in Montserrat. It's a really friendly place. It's obviously not a hugely popular place in the Caribbean. You know where the you know like I don't know it's not like Jamaica or all the kind of usual places you hear about that um, that have had a lot going on. It was obviously a different style of music. They did soca there. Um, you know they're known for their big hit, hot, hot, hot. And we interviewed yeah. Arrow has passed away, but we interviewed his brother Hero. Um, and yeah, they just got their they're very yeah very friendly people, and it kind of you know they weren't intimidated by celebrities. And Rose, who's the radio host, talks about how. Yeah, if you're a cricketer, people would, you know, they want all your autographs. But if you're just a musician, they're like, oh, yeah, we're here on the radio all the time. Um, so I think, you know, having that kind of environment around as well was, yeah, I feel like people down there didn't didn't feel like they had to, you know, be the stars they were or they could just actually live like normal people down there. And you can see with some of those photos of even Paul McCartney just driving around on a little, um, can't remember the name of those little cars. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, those little cars are sort of ubiquitous. They're kind of, it's almost like being at Disney World or something. But yeah, they're, uh, um, <laughs> it's, uh, and, and then part of this is what's, I thought it was incredible is that, you know, all these years later, you, um, um, you track down all these characters from Air Montserrat's past. I mean, and they have these incredible stories. Uh, and they themselves have become sort of music experts. Um, having, you know, hobnobbed with all these amazing bands and actually inspired some of these bands. Yeah, it was a real um, 
funny, yeah, time to try and find these people. I mean, my producer, Cody, just to backtrack a bit, she, her mom, Franela Sack, is an American artist, lived on the island in the 70s and she was there before oh. Sir George Martin went down there to build the studio um, and Cody went there on, like, her school holidays and everything. And, um, you know, so when she decided she wanted to make this film, she had a lot of the contacts um, through her mom of people. It was still hard to find them. They would say, like, Manetta lives at the Yellow House in Happy Valley and we'd be driving around the island going... Okay, and then you see a little yellow house and be like, oh, and then Manetta would come out and be like, hey. And so before we got to the island, it was quite hard to find um, some of the people, and especially Tappy Morgan, who was the chef, and everybody just talked about him. Like every artist was like, oh, my God, the chef, the chef, the chef. And then Cody found him in Chicago um, and offered to fly him out to L.A. never been to L.A. before because we were there filming. And it was really beautiful because we got to spend like four days with him um, before doing the interview and... A lot of the people, you know, it was such an amazing part of their lives and they're so, like, humble about it and they're not, you know, they're not star fuckers or anything like that. Um, and yeah. Desmond and X, like, they got to, you know, record backing vocals with the police. Danny Sweeney, the windsurfer, I mean, he went way off track in his interview, which was quite entertaining. Um, <laughs> talked about, you know, Sting and a clairvoyant and told this whole wild story that I wish we could have put in the film, but it just took too much of a detour. But, you know, they were people that um, they became friends with the artists and, you know, they still are. And I think now actually Jimmy Buffett's going to meet up with the chef when he's on tour because he just watched the film the other day and, you know, he was like, oh, my God, I'd love to see George. Yeah, so it's really nice. But, um, yeah, they were such an integral part of the story Um, and they because, you know, they were there the whole time and they were such a part of the flavour of, like, yeah, what it was like to be at a home studio like that when, yeah, yeah. everyone was kind of treated as one and um, they all became really good friends and, yeah, got to see, you know, it'd be amazing to, yeah, be there during the time like Elton John was there and see an album yeah. just being recorded yeah. in such a short time. Yeah. Well, we don't have to be so finely edited here, so if you want to share that uh, st- that story that you couldn't share in the film about Jimmy Sweeney, <laughs> yeah. we'd be interested to hear it. I think that, I think it was um, that Sting had had somebody like a clairvoyant, um, and and Danny had said, "Well, who is that person?" And he said, "Oh, that um, you know, that's my clairvoyant. He can tell you future and all this kind of stuff." And and Danny said, "Oh, you know, I'd like to I'd like to try that." And Sting was like, "Oh, well, you know, um, like he's quite expensive. Um, I can't, you know, not not that you know you wouldn't yet." Yeah, be able to afford it but um I could do it for you and so Danny went I mean Danny's story I I didn't know if Sting (laughs) but Danny turned up at um Sting's house and um and Sting did this like ceremony (laughs) (laughs) well he's quite a character this uh this windsurfer I mean he's even uh is it true he's the uh inspiration for the walk of life by the dire streets. Yeah, well, I mean, we, yeah, he, he says that and we interviewed Martin Offler after that and asked that because it was one of, you know, sometimes people tell stories in the documentary and you, you go, well, that's great because that's their version of it. And then yeah, there's that yeah. fearful moment when you ask someone for confirmation and we're like, this yeah. fuck that section and you know Mark Knopfler yeah I asked him like what did you think about that and you know so he was supportive of that story so so that was good because that can always be yeah a scary moment someone's like that's complete bullshit (laughs) (laughs) you're like oh no (laughs) it's Um, in the film I mean the same as like you know obviously Elton John's seen the film and approved it and there's you know the story about the guy who stands up and says 
you know, smoked a bunch of weed and passed out and Elton was upset that no one was, um, you know, working. And he kind of stood up and said, well, I'm still standing. And then he said, well, Bernie, you know, get on the keys and let's write this song. So, yeah, so there's some great stories like that that came from the island that, um, yeah, we, 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 you know, we'd heard about, they were kind of, you know, mythic mm. myths um, and then to be able to get them confirmed by the rock stars and by the, you know, the island of um, locals. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, I think, and, and I won't ask you to share too much more because this, this, uh, this film's littered with, with these kind of stories. I mean, it's, it's incredible. Um, and, you know, we're, we are talking about the locals. I mean, it can't really talk about Montserrat with actually also then unfortunately talking about the difficult history it's been through uh, yeah. sen- since 89 and uh, Hurricane Hugo and then, and then the volcano which Jimmy Buffett wrote about actually, and sang about, actually then did finally blow. And um, yeah, is it, I mean, yeah. I mean, I was I was just going to say you've been there since this has all happened. Uh, I gather half the place is uninhabitable. They've lost so much of their population. Um, I mean, what's it like to visit now? Yeah, well, I think the population was around ten to twelve thousand um, back in the period we were making the film, and now the population is a few thousand um so significantly a lot of pe- i mean a lot of people um lost their homes and also then a lot of people relocated um after that because i guess two-thirds of the island is yeah i'm yeah, unable to live there i mean we we went down to where the volcano like the not the base of the volcano but close enough yeah. to feel like you're the base of the volcano um and people haven't been back there for 20 years and you know they were told as they say they were told one night you know they should probably leave and um and then they did hoping that they would be able to go back there but you know there was a series of eruptions between 1995 and 1997 um yeah where now it's really interesting driving through the town and you see all this black sand and the blue water and it's lush and green and amazing then you just turn a corner and it's all you know there's police barricades and you can't go through we went through with the police and then as you start to drive in you see you know there's a house still there with some grass and then as you get further in it's like everything's just gone it always remind me of like the, yeah the you know Pompeii of the Caribbean especially because mm. we all the archive footage you'd see all the monuments like the clock tower and that was that's been completely covered now mm. um and it's, yeah, it's a um, yeah, terrible thing to happen. And, it, you know, a lot, I went on a deep dive of volcanoes when we started making the film because I didn't <laughs> know that much about it, volcanoes. Yeah. And there's a lot that go off, like, constantly everywhere yeah. and especially around there. Um, yeah, and a lot of, you know, even in New Zealand, like we, sh- we showed the film in New Zealand a month ago and, you know, they had, yeah, they have yeah. Volca- volcanoes and eruptions and, yeah, you kind of think, why would you want to live there? Why would you want to build a studio there? <laughs> it even makes it more poignant because I mean, um, and and so that was well, even with Hurricane Hugo, but that was between those two. Even if Hugo hadn't wiped out the studio, uh, the volcano would have. Uh, and so this 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 house, this home studio, is just derelict now. Going, it's rewilding. I, I gather. Um, yeah. And, which is incredible, and you—you, you, I know you've got Sir George Martin's family on there, and uh, his wife. Um, that's kind of how they're gonna gonna leave it, aren't they? Yeah, at the moment, I think you can't really get down there. Like it, it, the actual studio itself lies between the exclusion zone, which constantly shifts, and yeah. I don't know the metrics of that. Um, 
but yeah, it's amazing because we went down there and you can go into parts of it, but it's you can fall through the floorboards like it's you know yeah, decrepit. Yeah. But um, I mean, a lot of the artists left their you know fingerprints in cement and sign things, and and so going down to just such a remote place in the world and finding all that, it's quite. Yeah, it's just interesting. You really, I felt like when I was there that, you know, 20 years too, 30, 30 years too late would have been great to be there um, during the heyday. Mm. Um, now it's like just, a, yeah, a, a piece of history. But, you know, as George, I mean, he sums up the film by saying that, like, yeah, everything has a time and a place and it, and it does. And we felt like, yeah, really honoured to be able to go down there and, and see it. And I think especially for mm. Cody it was quite emotional because, you know, she'd been there as a kid and, yeah, going down there was kind of yeah, mm. an incredible experience. Yeah, and so I mean, and as the as the film points out too, the writing was on the wall for that studio even before storms and volcanoes happened, wasn't it? I mean, I think that was also uh, interesting that uh, you know with the it, how the it, the uh, I think you had one of the guys from America to even talk about how the digital age basically ushered out the the age of the yeah, album. Yeah, it's interesting with the digital age because, you know, at first we had a lot of people be like, well, you know, the 80s is the best time and yeah. and a few people, you know, who had been watching the film with us in the edit were like, you know, it's also, it was also a really positive change that happened because a lot of people yeah. who yeah. wouldn't have been able to afford to make music, like, you know, you look at someone like Billie Eilish today, she's mm. created a whole album, you know, basically on their phone. Um, or like, you know, Justin Bieber singing or gaining attention through YouTube or all of that stuff. Um, yeah, it was quite indulgent to be able to record on a desk yeah. like that and to be able to, you know, as Martin Offer says, oh, we went down there for a month and then, you know, hung out and felt the place and then recorded the album in three days. Like it was such a um, representation of the time of the music industry and what, um, what was allowed and how big the budgets were. Um, and, you know, it's like, yeah, as, as they say, everything's monetized and, and CDs came in and digital and, you know, Pro Tools and everything and it changed. And obviously there were bad things about that, that happening and there were great things about that. Mm. Mm. I think uh, actually we're going to give our, um, our listeners um, a little break here and let our sponsors say a few words. Um, so we'll be right back with uh, Gracie Otto, director of Under the Volcano. You're listening to Factual America. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Alamo Pictures to keep up to date with new releases or upcoming shows. Check out the show notes to learn more about the program, our guests, and the team behind the production. Now back to Factual America. So this was sort of the rock star dream. It was like a fantastic state-of-the-art studio in the Caribbean. I mean, this, this was it. This was like the Beatles or something. We sort of reached the pinnacle with uh, going to those studios. The the team were wonderful, they looked after us. I, I would run up the hill every morning from the villa and jump in the pool and then, you know, write lyrics or write a tune and then make the album. I sort of developed a relationship with the island and the people who lived there. Welcome back to Factual America. I'm here with acclaimed director Gracie Otto. The film is Under the Volcano, released digitally in the UK on July 26th. It's coming out in the US on August 17th and finally making its way from where it began, basically, in Australia and New Zealand on September uh, 1st. Um, I mean, in talking to you, Gracie, it's very obvious, and it was obvious watching the film, that this must have been so... I mean, I know it had its challenges, but this must have been a really fun film film to make. 
Um, and how did this uh, how did this all come about? Did you have it was it your uh, producer Cody who had the idea for the story? Cody's um, yeah, Cody's mum Fernanda Lasak. She was down there as an artist in the seventies before George Martin was there. And then Cody got to go to Montserrat on school holidays. So she actually kind of spent a lot of time as a child and teenager down there. So she was there, you know, around, yeah, around the time, you know, the volcano had erupted and everything. Um, and, she, well, and before and she would go and, you know, walk on the volcano with her dad and everything. Um, so I think for her it was, um, yeah, something that was a story that was closely related to her family in a way. And Malcolm and Dave, two of the guys who built the studio, they were in Perth a few years ago and just talking about the great stories and Cody was sitting there saying, why hasn't anyone made a film on this? Interesting. Um, and then that's how it kind of started. And then, you know, she went through all the right hoops of getting George Martin's estate to bless the film and, you know, be on board and then, you know, raise the money. And she'd actually interviewed Sting before I came on board and cut a sizzle reel together and had this like 70 page document that had every single band that had recorded there and all the stories she knew wow. about. And so she'd done a lot of the legwork. Um, yeah. For the film before I came on board. Okay. So she had, did she line up all the, the big names that you have on this? Cause it's, it's incredible. The, the people you have on camera. Yeah. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was a challenge, but um, yeah, she was very persistent in a good way with getting people. And I think, you know, I'd made a film a few years before that um, that had a lot of celebrity interviews mm -hmm. in it. And it's a patient process, which can be really hard and daunting, especially when you're two Australian filmmakers and you're waiting in London for someone to email you back at a potential interview. Right. Um, so that was definitely one of the biggest challenges of the film was trying to get all the interviews and get the right people that we wanted in the film. Hmm. And so how long did it take to make? Because uh, as you say, it's a, you have to, it's I a mean, patient process. I mean, not that long. Like compared to, yeah, it's a patient process, but we're really impatient. We started in, <laughs> um, I mean, we started kind of pre and doing some, some workshop things and stuff in early 2019. Um, and I was working up until the end of July. So we left on the 1st of August to London um we went into post uh pretty much in like we did about eight weeks overseas and we went to london and did mm. maybe like 15 interviews in one week which was pretty nuts and then went to the caribbean for eight days or something eight or nine days and then went over to america and went between la and new york and san francisco then came back to sydney then we went back to london like three times to get martin offler and nick rhodes and a few mm. others and then elton's band and jerry beckley were kind of the last interviews in january so we'd already done a lot um, of the assembly of the edit. And then, yeah, in March, just as the COVID pandemic started, we were in the last um, the last few months of the edit. Um, yeah, so it was per perfect timing. Yeah, and so, and you, uh, so uh, uh, Cody uh, brought you on board and uh, um, did you know about all this? I mean, it's, it's incredible. There's all this never before seen footage and I would dare say even never before heard footage. That's uh, quite incredible. Was that uh, yeah. was that just part of, or did you all uncover that together? Yeah, I mean, we worked. Yeah, we obviously worked as a team. I bought on my team from my first film. Um, so we had Lisa Savage on, who okay. did the archive, and Karen Johnson, who edited and sound designer Lawrence, um, and the same post production team. So that was um, great. And then, yeah, I mean, there was some of the archive we were. Um, you know, Stuart Copeland gave us his home videos or same with Paul McCartney. 
Lisa found some incredible stuff. And then Cody, you know, through her family connections as well, like one of her dad's friends was like, I think I have a recording of Stevie Wonder in my attic. <laughs> you know, and that's like, that was a wild kind of I was vibe. wondering about that because um, that's incredible. You know, that's when I was, what I yeah. was alluding to that never before heard uh, stuff. Yeah, so there was definitely some incredible finds and then uh, definitely challenging because the nature of the place was something where people didn't take cameras and they didn't, um, you know, like we had a lot of Cody's mum's photographs of the police um, on the boat and stuff, which is quite quite candid or, you know, we'd track down, you know, one of the girlfriends of Duran Duran who had photos of the 21st birthday and it's definitely like a a digging process um, but... Yeah, I'm sure it's that thing when my first film came out, stuff came out after, and I'm sure now there'll yeah. be, like, some great photos or videos that will surface after this film, and then you'll yeah. be like, oh, I wish it was in the film. Well, I mean, I will say even, I mean, there was even part of me that probably some of this stuff is never before seen, but I could have sworn I had seen it just because we hadn't realised how much Montserrat at the time influenced all these bands. And and even, even the video from... Um, the police video, everything she does is magic. I mean, that's uh, that's yeah. Andy Sumner, uh, Andy Summers dancing on the uh, the the the, uh, the, the desk <laughs> on the nave that we've been talking about. I mean, it was uh, I had no clue. You know, it's uh, yeah. It they was... literally we used to call them the spoiled kids at Christmas, the police, because they had we had the music video that was shot down there, uh, Stuart Copeland's footage, Andy Summers' beautiful photographs. We had, you know, all their mm. great songs, two amazing albums done that, down there, an in, interview with Sting and uh, all three of them. So it was kind of, yeah, so that was hard when, yeah, they they were so heavily weighted with, like, everything that we wanted. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, trying to find the archive to fill the other sections and try to see, you know, what we could find to, yeah, tell those stories. Yeah. Well, and then, so if obviously one thing we haven't really touched on, I've, Interestingly enough, uh, I'll take the blame, but it's what an incredible soundtrack this thing has, and your budget for the rights must be must be enormous. Yeah, the budget was big for the music, yeah. Um, and yeah, Kim Green, who does like she does all the Baz Luhrmann films, and she's amazing music supervisor. Um, I mean, it took her a year to clear everything, and. Yeah, it was definitely um, no mean feast. And it was really it was really hard and interesting because it's kind of, yeah, trying to balance out what the budget we had. And obviously when we start editing, wanting to just put everything in. And, you know, Cody always <laughs> reminds me that she'd kind of very cleverly budgeted all the best songs. Um, and then there were obviously bands that went down there that we didn't end up using or whatever, so would save money there. But then... When um, Cody and I wrote the film um, as well, when we were in the kind of reshuffling with our editor Karen of the of the script, we were we kind of felt like we needed to show where the bands were at at that time in their career. Um, so you know, we wanted Benny and the Jets, <laughs> and it was like right. that footage at like Central Park or whatever. Yeah. So all those things, Cody was like, you know, these are just extras that you just threw in there. Like, oh, why don't we put Benny in the Jets? Or why don't we put this song that um, that established, you know, like Roxanne, yeah. that established like, exactly, exactly yeah. straight away who the band was. Yeah. yeah. No, but it's uh, it was so. I mean, it's it's a it's it's a it's a great film. It's uh, it, you've done a wonderful job just putting what could have been just, I'm, I'm sure, hours and hours. Uh, getting it down to uh, a very digestible, what is it, 
hour and 35, I think. And, uh, yeah. uh, you know, and I think, uh, so definitely it's, um, well, well worth a watch. Cause, um, I mean, and you don't have to be an old person like me who actually lived through that era. It's, uh, it's an incredible time and, uh, for music and it's, 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 it's definitely representative of a, of an era, isn't it? Um, um, yeah. Gracie, I, I gather 2021 is an incredibly busy year for you. Um, do you want to, uh, I mean, you've got a lot on besides this uh, one documentary. Do you want to talk about uh, basically? Yeah, I do. Yeah. You, yeah. What are some of the other things coming out? Have you got some interesting stuff? You've got some great TV series. You've got a uh, uh, this this feature that's coming out, I believe. Yeah. Um, could, could you share yeah, that with I mean, us? No, uh, yeah. Yeah, you've done your research. Um, yeah, I was really busy because we were in post last year on the film and I did a TV show here in Australia and then went up and did a feature film, which is um, a company I've got, Dollhouse Pictures, is our first feature about a Dolly Parton impersonator. So that was really fun after just finishing Under the Volcano to go up and do kind of, you know, a comedy feature, my first uh, fiction feature. Mm. Um and, and, and you've then, got Rose. If yeah, I may, if I may interrupt there, you've got yes. let's. You've got Rose Byrne and uh, Bobby Cannavale on yeah, that, Rose don't Byrne, you? Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, Rose and Bobby. Yeah, yeah, they were both um, great to work with. We had to shoot Rose at the start of the shoot and Bobby at the end, so they actually never got to hang out with each other on set, even though they're a couple. Um, <laughs> and then, yeah, Celeste Barber, Crew Boylan, who's in my company, she she wrote the um, screenplay and she plays the Dolly Parton impersonator. Oh, so, yeah, it's a really fun, really fun film. And it was, yeah, we shot up in Byron Bay. Um, at the end of last year. So it was like that was when Australia was, you know, the best country in the world to live in uh, with yeah. COVID. <laughs> so it was a really, yeah, it was a really amazing experience and really different to documentary, mm. obviously, um, yeah. completely different mindset and different process, um, which was interesting. I really, you know, I love making documentary, but I really enjoyed doing that. Um, and then I just uh, directed on a TV series, which is a sketch comedy that comes out on Friday on Amazon Worldwide called The Moth Effect. Okay. Um, and that's with these two creators, Nick Boschier and Jazz Tremol, can never pronounce their names correctly, um, who were, yeah, Australian kind of satire-style comedians, um, and that was really fun. And they, yeah, different different sketches. Um, there's like six sketches per episode. So, yeah, yeah it comes out on Friday. Well, what, excellent. Now, I, I, did I read correctly that you actually did a, some stand-up yourself? I did. Yeah, I did some when I was in LA and then I thought I'd get back into it here and then found out that I guess my comedy was about my point of difference with being an Australian in LA or, you know, Australian abroad. Um, I I guess it was very self-deprecating humour, the style of comedy I was doing. Um, But, yeah, after the pandemic, I haven't really done it here. I I wanted to and then, yeah, everything closed down last year and then I've just been so busy. I don't know, it was kind of like a void I was feeling in LA when... I didn't have the work that I wanted. I just, you know, whenever I get bored um, or I'm not working, I like to try new things. So I kind of mm. felt like it was something I really wanted to try. Well, you've got, I mean, uh, you've got this incredible mix of uh, ex- experience and um, and uh, talent. So you've got you've got documentary. I mean, you said obviously it's very different. We've had directors on who've done both uh, dramas and you know, features and in, in docs, but uh, are you drawn in one one direction more than the other now, or 
is it something you want to keep your hands in in both pies? Yeah. I mean, or? I think documentary is like something that, you know, does go on for a few years and there's something nice about that long form project and, and discovery yeah. and research and, and kind of, you know, I always say like making a feature film is like climbing a mountain because, you know, you've got the actors, you've got the finance that's going to happen, whereas making a documentary is like jumping out of a plane and then working out how to do the parachute. Like you're like, I've got access to the people, mm. but I don't know how I'm going to ever get this. It's like a different um, thing. But I, I like, you know, I really like working in TV as well because I find, you know, here in Australian TV we shoot like eight to ten pages a day and I love the speed of that and I also love the speed mm. of the edit because it's something that you can't labour on too long. Um and then, you know, I shoot a lot of ads, a lot of fashion as well. Yeah. Um, so I, I think a lot of the skill sets kind of end up overlapping in, in some way. And I think, you know, in Australia, sometimes people can be very quick to like pigeonhole you into one box of being able to do one thing. So I'm always quite determined to just keep doing new things or whatever interests mm. me. And I, yeah, I, have a, I can have a long attention span or something, a really short attention span. So, mm. yeah, I just like to work. Yeah, well, uh, it's you're you're good at it, and also um, it's not just Australia that likes to pigeonhole people. I mean, you know, um, in this industry, even in docs, uh, you'll get be you know people want to be thinking you're the the music doc person. You know, I mean, it's uh, yeah, and, and I think it's a challenge. We've t- discussed it with other directors who who aren't that. You know, there are some people who do that who do a great job specializing in true crime or whatever they do, uh, but there yeah. are those who. Um, you know, they do talk about it being a challenge to be able to just go to the th- just go from one interesting story to another, not being pigeonholed um, as to what sort of genre it is, even even within documentaries. Um, I mean, with all that in mind, what is is there? What is you know, you've got a lot on, but what is next for you? Maybe a little bit further down the line. Yeah, I'm doing a show later in the year, which isn't announced yet, but it's a Netflix show here in Australia which I'm really excited about so that's um just been pushed back a bit because of COVID so it was hoping to start it was meant to be starting pre-production this week um so I'm doing that we're in post on the film still um so finishing that off I always feel like I forget something um I'm doing uh, I do yeah do a lot of fashion stuff and ads as well so um and then I've got a documentary about my dad that I had we've shot like 90% of it but I just have to finish it Okay. Um, I was going, I was going yeah, to ask so you about like a six-week edit, but yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that. What what's that like making a doc about your dad? And and, um, f- and for our listeners who don't know, your dad's a uh, famous uh, Australian actor, uh, Barry Otto. So uh, what was I mean? I'm sure, and as a father myself with a daughter, I can only imagine the the joys and challenges that that might uh, entail. Yeah, I think it's really interesting making a film about a family member. I mean, I've always loved Sarah Polly's documentary, Stories yeah. We Tell, because I lived, yeah. you know, with my dad. I lived over in LA and I travelled all through my 20s, but, like, I still lived at home. Um, and it's amazing what you don't know about someone, even mm. though he lived in the house for, like, 30 years. But, yeah, my dad's obviously an actor, um, big, big theatre actor here. And, yeah, it's an interesting... I guess it's an interesting experience because it's yeah a lot more a lot more personal in a way, um, and it's been it's been a great film to make, and it's just yeah it's one of those things like with all good documentaries it starts off about yeah. one thing and kind of ends yeah. up about something else, um, and I think for me, Dad, you know I remember when I first tested my camera out when I was shooting Last Empresario, I was like, oh, can you just jump in front? I was testing all the focus, yeah. and I remember him being so 
great on camera and so engaging. And Michael White, who I'd made my film on, had had seven strokes right. and it was really hard for him to be, you know, present in the interviews and give that kind of punch. Whereas, so I think with this film, it's like we did a bunch of interviews, um, like in the style of Under the Volcano and Last Impresario, but I really feel like this film will be just a portrait of him or from his point of view of the world. And, and then mm. hopefully people will discover the films and TV theatre that he's done more than a kind of talking head or a, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, just kind of observational, um, yeah, film. And do you have, I mean, or, or do you need, do you have anyone on, over your shoulder who just basically says, we know you're his daughter, but, you know, you might want to consider doing that, you know, differently. Do you get any, uh, you know, how how is that? Because I, I think I can imagine it could be difficult both for, you know, um, not that you're trying to lionize your father, but I mean, I think trying to get the balance right. Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, I had, I had another cinematographer for some sh stuff we shot at the theatre and then, you know, I get a lot of different, um, I get a lot different perspective when it's me shooting him. I mean, some of my favourite footage is when, I'm doing an interview with him and then I walk out of the room, but I've got the headphones on and he's like, oh, she's asking me that again. You know, he gets like angry. And then I come back in and he's like, hello. And he's like, so lovely to me. Um, yeah. So it's been, you know, it's a funny, but it's also been a really interesting, you know, I think people don't ask people enough questions or about their family until people have died. And so it's kind of a um, yeah. interesting yeah. film to, I think a lot of people, especially me kind of hold things without asking people questions that, it's too personal um, until they're gone. So, yeah, yeah we'll see how I go. All right. Well, we look forward to seeing it, definitely. Um, well, I think, I, I hate to say it, but I think we've come to the end of our time together, uh, Gracie. No it's been it's a, It's been a joy having you on. Thank you so much. Um, Thank again, you. Uh, really enjoyed the film. Um, Under the Volcano uh, came out on digital DVD and Blu-ray, in uh, certainly in the UK on July 26th. And he comes out on the in the U.S. on August seventeenth, and Australia, New Zealand on September first. So, a big thank you again to Gracie Otto, director and writer of Under the Volcano. I'd also like to give a shout out to Sam and Joe at Intersound Audio in Eskrick, England, just outside of York. A big thanks to Nevena Paunovich, our podcast manager at Alamo Pictures, who ensures we continue getting such great guests like Gracie onto the show. Finally, a big thanks to our listeners. As always, we love to hear from you, so please keep sending us feedback and episode ideas, whether it is on YouTube, social media, or directly by email. And please remember to like us and share us with your friends and family wherever you happen to listen or watch podcasts. This is Factual America, signing off. You've been listening to Factual America. This podcast is produced by Almo Pictures, specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for international audiences. Head on down to the show notes for more information about today's episode, our guests, and the team behind the podcast. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alamo Pictures. Be the first to hear about new productions, festivals showing our films, and to connect with our team. Our homepage is alamopictures.co.uk.